Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Darkest days. Dozens dead as a series of tornadoes churn across the Midwest. I want to find my way. <laughs> as rescuers scramble to find survivors, do they have the help they need? Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir and FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell join us. And mandate debate. COVID cases on the rise as health experts push for a third shot, while many are still refusing to get their first. How far should the government go to ensure everyone gets a vaccine? Two leaders for and against mandates. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson join me to debate their sides next. Plus, prices are rising as Americans worry about rising costs. It's a real bump in the road. It does affect families. Democrats look for a win on their social safety net bill. But can they get it done this year? I'll speak exclusively to Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar ahead. Hello, I'm Dick Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is holding out hope for the missing. Emergency crews in the Midwest are continuing the desperate search and rescue effort through tons of wreckage, flattened homes and factories and cars that were simply tossed around after at least 30 tornadoes touched down across six states this weekend. Kentucky, Arkansas, Missouri, Mississippi, Illinois, and Tennessee. Dozens of people are feared dead and officials warn the number will almost certainly rise as rescuers continue to sift through the devastation. Joining me now from the Commonwealth hardest hit, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir. Governor Bashir, thanks for joining us. How many confirmed deaths do you have in Kentucky? How many of your citizens are still unaccounted for? Well, the confirmation process uh, is slow. I can tell you from reports that I've received I know we've lost more than 80 Kentuckians. That number is, is going to exceed more than 100. Uh, this is the deadliest tornado event we have ever had. I think it's going to be the, the longest and, and deadliest tornado event in U.S. history. Uh, we know that one of these tornadoes was on the ground over 227 miles, and Jake, 200 were in Kentucky. I've got towns that are gone, that are just, I mean, gone. The, the, my dad's hometown um, half of it uh, isn't, isn't standing. It is hard to describe. I know people can see the visuals, but that goes on for 12 blocks or, or more in, in some of these places. And it's going to take us time. I mean, you, you think you'd go door to door to check on people and see if they're okay. There are no, there are no doors. The, the question is, is somebody in, in the rubble of thousands upon thousands of, of structures? I mean, it is, it is devastating. And there's, meanwhile, there's no electricity. It's been below freezing. How are rescue efforts going? Well, we do have a lot of help. Uh, we have an amazing state of good people uh, that have come in from other cities and towns um, where, they, where they weren't hit. And, and so we have a lot of assistance. They've come in from uh, other states, uh, certainly federal partners like ATF, Coast Guard, and others. 
uh, are also helping. But um, it's just the massive uh, widespread damage makes, makes rescue efforts uh, a challenge. Now, if we haven't found somebody by now, it's, it's, of, it's of really great concern. You know, the, the area that was hit the hardest, uh, Mayfield, I was there yesterday. Uh, we'll be back to today. Uh, certainly a candle factory there that it'll be a miracle if we pull anybody else um, out of that. It's uh, now 15 feet deep of steel and cars on top of where the roof uh, was. Um, just uh, just tough. But but our, 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 our rescuers out there are incredible. Uh, they work uh, through the night while it was occurring, put the, putting themselves in danger through all of yesterday, hopefully caught a few hours of sleep last night. Uh, I was at our emergency operations center beginning at 1 a.m., uh, mm-hmm. I guess, yesterday. And, and hearing the reports coming in moment by moment, people trapped in a, in a basement because their house uh, is gone and, and getting people to them. Just um, a lot of amazing efforts. Is there a number of uh, Kentuckians who remain unaccounted for? But again, that's region by region. Uh, I'll just say um, in, in Dawson Springs, again, that's where my family's from. It's a town of about 2,700, the, the list of unaccounted for was about eight pages, single space. So uh, pretty bad. And many of the likely deaths are at um, one particular candle factory. What do you know about whether those workers had a chance to get to safety or, or if they had a plan in place? Well, my understanding is that they did have a plan inside the facility that we believe uh, most of the workers got to what is supposed to be the, the safest place in the facility. But when you see the, the, the damage that this storm did, not just there, um, but across the area, I'm not sure there was a plan uh, that would have worked. So we had about 110 Kentuckians, um, ma- mainly residents of Mayfield, that were working in that facility. Um, about 40 of them have, have been rescued. And I'm not sure that uh, we're going to see uh, another rescue. I pray for it. Um, it would be an incredibly welcome uh, miracle, but I think it's been since 3.30 yesterday morning that we have that we found a live person. That's just a horrible, horrible, horrible experience for the good, good men and women and children of, uh, of Kentucky. Governor Bashir, our, our prayers are with you. Um, and please keep in touch. Let us know if there's anything you're not getting from the federal government that you need that we can help shine a light on. I appreciate that. One way that people can help is we've set up a fund, teamwkyreliefund.ky.gov. That is our Team Western Kentucky uh, Relief Fund. That is going to uh, be managed uh, by the state. It's going to go entirely to families impacted in Western Kentucky. Sadly, the first expense is likely burial expenses, but to help uh, those families grieve. We've got to be with them as they grieve. And then in the months and the year to come, we've got to be with them as they rebuild. We've been, we've been hit in a way that is unimaginable, but we will get through it. Um, uh, we'll get through it together and we'll rebuild. We're, uh, we're strong people. Governor Bashir, thank you so much. Thank you. President Biden says he will visit areas affected by the tornadoes and pledge to do whatever it takes to help the survivors. And joining me now, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell, who's about to get on a plane and go down to Kentucky with the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, Administrator Criswell, thanks for joining us. How many uh, people are still missing across these six states 
hit by these devastating tornadoes? And is there hope that some people might still be found alive in the rubble? Yeah, good morning, Jake. You know, first, I just wanted to start by saying my prayers go out to everybody across these states that has been impacted by these events. Um, We still do have uh, reports of people that are missing and unaccounted for. I don't have exact numbers, um, but the life-saving and life-sustaining efforts are our priority today to continue to try to find as many people as we can that might still be trapped in this rubble. So it's it's still a rescue mission, not just a recovery. There's still hope. I think there is still hope, right? We sent one of our federal urban search and rescue teams down to Kentucky. They arrived through the day yesterday. They're going to be able to assist the localities with their uh, ongoing rescue efforts. Um, And so I think that there is still hope, and we should continue to try to find as many people as we can. What are the state's biggest priorities right now? What do they need the most? The biggest priority still, again, life-saving missions. But then right now, um, we have so many people that have been displaced as a result of these tornadoes. Uh, there's sheltering that's going to need to take place. Uh, my experience as an emergency manager has shown that many people will stay with friends and family. Um, but there are going to be some that are going to need some short-term sheltering and then some long-term assistance as they, as they rebuild. Um, I spoke with the president of the American Red Cross yesterday and talked about her efforts to support the states with their shelter. And we're continuing to work with the states on their long-term housing needs. The governor of Kentucky called this the most devastating tornado event in his state's history. How unusual is it to see a storm this powerful this late in the year? You know, I think it's incredibly unusual. We do see uh, tornadoes in December. That part is not unusual. Um, But at this magnitude, I don't think we've ever seen one this late in the year, but it's also historic. Um, Even this, the severity and the amount of time this tornado or these tornadoes spent on the ground is unprecedented. And scientists warn that extreme weather events such as this one will only happen more frequently as the climate continues to warm. Is your agency, is FEMA equipped to handle this new normal? Uh, This is going to be our new normal, and uh, the the effects that we're seeing from climate change are the crisis of our generation. Uh, We're taking a lot of efforts at FEMA to work with communities to help reduce the impacts um, that we're seeing from these severe weather events and help to develop system-wide projects um, that can help protect communities. And so we'll continue to work on helping to reduce the impacts, um, but we're also prepared to respond to any community that gets impacted by one of these severe events. All right, Administrator Criswell, uh, thanks so much and appreciate the work you do. All right, thank you so much. Tornadoes killed at least two people in Arkansas. One of them died uh, here at a nursing home in Monette, Arkansas, a nursing home that was horribly damaged. Governor Asa Hutchinson inspected that damage yesterday. He joins us now. Uh, Governor Hutchinson, uh, tell us about what you saw firsthand in your state, the, the devastation from the tornadoes. Well, as you fly over some of the uh, communities that are impacted, there's swaths of houses that are destroyed, people are displaced, but as you indicated, uh, the miracle happened in Monette, uh, Arkansas, northeast part of the state, small community where a nursing home was struck. And as I went to that uh, facility, it was like uh, heaven sucked up uh, the roof and all the contents of it, and it's just a miracle with 67 residents that uh, we only lost one there, and that's because of the heroic efforts of uh, the staff and also the fact that uh, we had 20 minutes of uh, warning. Uh, The siren went off alerting the citizens that a tornado 
uh, was in the vicinity and because of that they were able to get the residents in the hallway and so uh, preparation uh, makes a big difference. Uh, uh, the investments in those early warning systems uh, saved a lot of lives in this instance. And President Biden has promised to use the full force of the federal government to help. Uh, are you, is Arkansas getting the help you need? We are. And uh, first of all, the calls that I've had from fellow governors, uh, from the public that's willing to help is just uh, heartwarming to know that this uh, tragedy can bring people together. We always support our neighbors. The president, on a call with him yesterday, he pledged any support that was necessary. FEMA is uh, standing ready. And so we're still uh, recovering, making sure people uh, have a place to stay. And then we'll go through the long process of rebuilding uh, these homes, which are heartaches for each individual citizens. Uh, it's important that, and the president said he would cut through any red tape to make sure uh, that we get the disaster declaration uh, once we get the uh, numbers in and justify that. Governor Hutchinson, stick around because New York Mayor Bill de Blasio is going to join us for a debate on COVID vaccine mandates next, dealing with a different crisis. And the future for 10 million kids living in poverty could hang in the balance as Democrats remain divided on President Biden's social safety net bill. Will Democrats be able to deliver by Christmas? We'll talk to Senator Amy Klobuchar ahead. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. We're spending yet another holiday season in the shadow of COVID-19. Cases and hospitalizations are tragically rising again. And how you celebrate the holiday will certainly depend on who's in charge of your city or state. Starting this week in New York City, anyone, including children ages five and above, will not be able to eat in a restaurant or go to a movie theater without being able to prove that they've had at least one shot for a kid and the full regiment if you're over 12. By the end of December, Mayor Bill de Blasio is requiring that all, that's right, all private sector employees will need to be vaccinated. It would be the most sweeping COVID requirements in the United States. Meanwhile, 11 states, including Arkansas, are suing to prevent the Biden administration from requiring businesses with more than 100 employees to mandate vaccines or weekly testing. And a 52-vote Senate majority, including Democrats John Tester and Joe Manchin, voted to overturn President Biden's vaccine mandate for businesses, although it's unlikely the House will agree. We're going to try something new on State of the Union today here to debate whether vaccine mandates are the best way to end this pandemic. Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. First of all, we should both note that you both agree that the vaccines are safe and effective. You've both gotten them. You've repeatedly urged Americans to go get vaccinated where you disagree on whether or not the government should mandate them. So let's start this debate uh, by let me asking you, uh, Governor Hutchinson, and then you two can just engage each other. New York City has sweeping mandates for workers and businesses, and it might sound too sweeping for some people, but 71% of residents of New York City are fully vaccinated. Arkansas has no mandates, and only 50% of your residents are fully vaccinated. Does that not show, Governor Hutchinson, the vaccine mandates work? Well, I don't believe it does. Uh, first of all, put it in historical perspective that never in the history of our country has government mandated the private sector to require vaccinations. It's generally been left up to the states and localities, but it has been looked at as an education effort uh, in our school systems. To put this into the businesses does a number of things. One, it, it hardens resistance. Uh, that's what we see in, in Arkansas, but I think across the country. 
Secondly, the courts have struck it down. Uh, by and large, uh, the president's mandate, these mandates are unconstitutional constitutional overreaches and the courts are looking at it in that fashion. Uh, it's a little bit closer case when it comes to a city because that's the government closest to the people. But if you're looking at a, a, a million employees and you get a 90% vaccination rate, you still have 10%, which is 100,000 workers. And whenever the businesses are struggling with workers, our service providers, they're providing for their family, you don't need to add 100,000 to the unemployed list. And that would hurt us in trying to do our recovery, provide the services we need already struggling, even in the healthcare industry. Mm -hmm. uh, if you put that mandate in, you're gonna lose some healthcare workers as well. So that's the reasons, part of the reasons that we oppose those mandates. Mayor de Blasio? Yeah, Governor, look, I wanna to speak to this, but first I wanna just say my heart goes out to the people of Arkansas. I appreciate your leadership as you're dealing with this crisis. And I want you to know people in New York City are praying for the people of Arkansas right now uh, that things recover quickly. Thank you. To, to the question here, Governor, look, um, right now, here's what I fear. Omicron is here. It's all over the country. Uh, this variant moves fast. We have to move faster. And, and I'll tell you what I hear from our business community, that their greatest fear is shutdowns. Their greatest fear is going back to where we were in 2020, to restrictions, to people losing their livelihood. Uh, you mentioned unemployment. The greatest threat to employment right now is that uh, the Omicron variant and the, the cold winter months are going to supercharge COVID and take us backwards. So I'm gonna to argue to you that mandates work and it's time since I put mandates in place in New York City starting in August, we've seen over a million more doses. 71% uh, of our people fully vaccinated. A lot of those people made the decision because the mandate was there and it was the thing that moved them. And it's, it's keeping people alive. So I, I do agree with you, we have to take all the factors into account, but we've proven that mandates work. And now we're up against a new enemy with this new variant. We've gotta have a strategy to fight back. Governor. Well, well, well Mayor, I know that uh, New York has challenges because of its density of population that perhaps other places do not have. And also the success of New York is important for my country. I've got a granddaughter that's going to school in New York City. But whenever you look at uh, the vaccinations, uh, we are in agreement. Let's increase those vaccination rates. But how do you get there? And to me, we're right now dividing our country on this issue of mandates. Uh, but on the issue of vaccination, by and large, Republicans, Democrats, everybody are together on that. And education works. And we increase that uh, here in Arkansas. I had town meetings all across the state, uh, bringing education efforts, encouraging that, but never in history, particularly with the young people with only an emergency use authorization by the FDA, have we mandated uh, that vaccine at this early stage. It's right, we need that, but we know the solution to this, which is the vaccination. If you're not vaccinated, uh, you can socially distance, you can take the steps, and private businesses should be able to make the decision themselves. Many might require of their employees to be vaccinated, but let's let them make that decision. And of course, people can make decisions as to where they want to go. 
But to put the mandate in is unprecedented. It's going to cause hardship and it's going to cause division in our country, as you can all, always see, already see. And yeah. so that's the reason I think the mandates take us the wrong direction. Governor, look, I, I respect the point about division in the country is something we're all grappling with. And I want to thank you. I know you showed courage in saying uh, that private sector employers in Arkansas should have the right, if they choose, uh, to put a mandate in place. I appreciate you took that stand. But I'll tell you something. Uh, you have several times said, understandably, we, we don't have a precedent here. Yeah, I agree we don't have a precedent because this is absolutely an unprecedented crisis. And we're about to go into year three of it. And, Governor, this is, this is my fear. You know, we thought several times we're going to leave the COVID era behind. Uh, we could leave it behind in 2022 if we truly focus on vaccination and put the tough mandates in place to make sure we turn the corner. If we don't, here's what I fear. We go back to lockdowns, restrictions. We lose another year. And I can tell you for a lot of businesses, I've, small business owners I've talked to, mom and pop stores, they can't afford to lose another year. So that's the economic side. On the human side, and I'm representing a city that's lost tens of thousands of our fellow residents, people, I, you and you talk to someone who lost a grandparent, a father, a mother, it brings home, we've got to stop this thing now. And, and I'll tell you, and I'll challenge you respectfully on this point, Look at what mandates have allowed us to achieve. Our schools are safe. Uh, our restaurants are thriving. Broadway is back because people go in there and they know they're safe. Everyone's vaccinated. And it's actually kept them thriving while keeping the COVID levels low here. Why wouldn't we want that for everyone? Governor? Mayor, what is your uh, uh, vaccination rate uh, in New York City before the mandates went into place? It was about 57%, about 57% before the mandate started in August. It's about 71% now fully vaccinated, all residents. And that means about a million more doses since we put uh, the mandates in place. And we know, we saw it with our, our own workforce, our public workforce. A lot of them were hesitant, truthfully. Uh, a lot of them needed some extra incentive. And, and reason now it's 94% of our public employees are vaccinated because of those mandates. Okay, that's public employees. I'm talking about the private sector, though, which is a totally different issue, although I don't believe we ought to have the mandates in place. But you're able to get to a fairly high vaccination rate through education and also because the people of New York understood the risk. And they live through it. They understand that. And in people in Arkansas, as the risk increase, the vaccination rates increase as well. And so through education, you have had a great deal of success. The mandates, though, are going to cause adverse hardship. People know what they need to do, but the mandates uh, are going to cause consistent resistance. You're going to lose uh, public health workers. And that's what we're going to we're seeing in Arkansas if we put that into place. And so the private sector can make that decision as they've done, whether they want a uh, vaccine requirement for their employees. People are going to make good decisions on this, but let's not divide again on this. And so I hope that we can work together to increase vaccination rates. You've done a great job in the city voluntarily, but the mandates I think you'll see are going to cause uh, even greater hardship and uh, 
and uh, the court's going to take a look at it. And Mayor de Blasio, we should just yeah. we should just note that you mandated all private sector workers in New York City need to get vaccinated by December 27th. That's just two days after Christmas. Should all businesses in New York City fire workers in the middle of the holidays if they refuse to get vaccinated? We chose the 27th, mindful, of course, of uh, Christmas and the holiday season, Jake. And, and the bottom line is what we found with all the mandates, we did this with the private sector already, with restaurants, uh, indoor entertainment, fitness. And what we found is, in fact, employees overwhelmingly agreed and followed through. They may not have thought they would like it originally, but they ultimately chose to get that shot and in fact realize that everyone was safe in those settings. The customers have loved it, I've heard this consistently and I've heard it from restaurant owners. They're full now because people go in confident that they'll be safe. So it's been very good for business. What's bad for business is the threat of potential shutdowns and restrictions. I've, I've got business owners terrified that we're gonna go back where we were. Look at Germany right now. Look at England right now. I mean, they are, they are going backwards fast. So I'd say to you, Governor, I, I understand the power, agree with you, education crucial. But right now, if, if for example, in Arkansas, 50% of folks fully vaccinated, uh, that runs the huge risk of COVID reasserting of you know, hundreds or thousands mm-hmm. of people losing their lives, particularly our seniors. I hear you on the power of education, but I'm challenging you on the question of time. We are running out of time, yeah. Omicron coming, winter coming. We've got to do something we're, more we're, now. Governor to, Hutchinson, to, final thought from you. Just, just, just a quick point, and that's, first of all, we should not even think about shutdowns. The businesses should not have that fear. They shouldn't have the choice of being shut down or, or requiring a vaccine uh, for their employees. Uh, but secondly, it's the enforcement side. If you do not have an enforcement mechanism, then it brings disrespect for the law and it brings unfairness as to who complies and who does not comply. And so for all of those reasons, it's not an option of shutdown or not. Uh, But Mayor, uh, thank you for your leadership. And Jake, thanks for this opportunity to debate this important issue. Well, one thing we can all agree on is that everyone should get vaccinated, especially now as we approach the holidays. Thanks to both of you for joining us. We really, really appreciate the uh, civil-spirited debate. Coming up, the Supreme Court just issued a new ruling on abortion this week. What does that suggest about the future of abortion rights in the U.S.? Senator Amy Klobuchar is next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. Senate Democrats are scrambling to get President Biden's Build Back Better plan passed before Christmas. That's just 13 days away. Supporters of the bill say it would make historic investments to help American families. But one key Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, is still the big bah humbug for his party, questioning whether the nearly $2 trillion bill is necessary and declining to commit to supporting it. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. So Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Senate is still on track to pass the Build Back Better bill before Christmas. That's just 13 days away. Yes or no, is this going to pass by Christmas? We have to get this done, Jake. And uh, Senator Manchin is still at the negotiating table. There is no doubt about that. Um, And the reason we have to get it done is we're paying the highest prices for drugs, for prescription drugs of any country in the world. Yet our taxpayers have funded all this research. This Build Back Better bill is the first time we're finally going to take on pharma. We're willing to do it. The Republicans are not. Secondly, we know we have a workforce shortage. It's part of what's going on with the supply chain and the Mm -hmm. like. 
you got to make sure people have childcare so they can get back to work, help taking care of their aging parents, and apprenticeships. We know that there are a bunch of people out there who are not yet back into the workforce, and we need to make sure they go into jobs like in hospital area with COVID still raging, making sure that we've got enough truck drivers and construction workers and plumbers. Right. That's a lot about what this bill is when but we will talk it pass about building by, back better. By Christmas? Is it going to pass by Christmas? I am all in on getting it done by Christmas and we'll do everything to get it done. So Republicans asked the Congressional Budget Office to analyze the Build Back Better bill if key provisions such as the child tax credit or universal pre-K were made permanent instead of being phased out after a few years. Under that set of circumstances, they found, the CBO found that it would potentially add $3 trillion to the deficit. Now, I understand Democrats are pushing back on that because the bill, as written, does not make those programs permanent. But don't you ultimately want those programs to be permanent? Facts matter here, Jake. And the point is, is what you just made is that this bill is paid for. It's paid for by taxing the wealthiest. And it's paid for to help regular people. But you want and those. All the economists have to, said yeah. that it doesn't make it. It's not inflationary because of the fact it's paid for. Now, one of the reasons you like to have programs be for shorter time sometimes, you want to make sure they're working. You want to think what's work. We know, I think, that pre-K is going to be a major part of this, that it is going to be something that we should keep in, keep in place. So what do you do? You can continue a lot of the tax changes we've made to pay for it. There's other tax changes out there that we haven't even touched. Like, for instance, bringing up the corporate tax rate to where it was before the Trump presidency. Every point you bring it up, if you brought it up to, say, 25 percent, that's $400 billion. That's still on the table. But why do I bring that up? Is that there are still ways to pay for things going forward. But right now, with this bill, it is paid for and it is not inflationary. To the contrary, it's going to help us with the inflation issue. Right. So the CBO report did seem designed to... Uh, get Joe Manchin to not support the bill, right? I mean, that's kind of... Clearly, this was why the Republicans asked for this. But Joe Manchin is someone, he gets our country. He gets the plight of so many people in West Virginia and how they've been having to pay more for uh, prescription drug prices. He's been actually a strong proponent of taking on pharma to bring down prescription drugs. Have you prices. talked to him? Is he on board yet? Because he has not committed to this bill, and you need him. You can't pass I know. it without him. The obvious. Right. Um, and those negotiations are continuing, as they are on voting rights, something else very important. He is behind uh, the bill that I'm leading, uh, the Freedom to Vote Act. So much, many people have been working on this, from Senator Schumer to uh, Tim Kaine, uh, to Senator Warnock and Padilla and John Tester. It's an incredible effort. Every single Democrat supporting that bill. And we just got to find a way to get it on the floor for a vote. You grilled the head of Instagram this week over his app's impact on young users and the blind eye he's turning to some of the devastating impact on, on especially young girls. Um, now you're introducing uh, legislation to require social media companies to publicly release internal data and to cooperate with independent researchers looking into their app's impact on the public. Republican Senator Rob Portman co-sponsored the bill with you. Do you have the votes to pass it? Uh, I actually think we do. There is a bipartisan movement to take this on. The interests of parents right now and the interests of these social media platforms are diametrically opposed. Parents want their kids to be doing homework. You know, you have kids. Parents want their kids um, to be, if they're going to look at TV or any kind of content, They want them to be protected from really bad stuff. That's not happening right now. And what we've seen with the platforms, and this is what we asked the CEO of Instagram, is that they're putting more and more money into wooing teens to try to keep them on the site because it's a feeder group that then gets addicted to their product. 
That is exactly what's happening. Then they see more ads and they can sell more advertising. It's pretty obvious. And this includes, of course, Facebook, TikTok, all these platforms. And we all know Meta, Facebook, owns Instagram. So what we're pushing for is, one, a federal privacy law. Two, making sure we put more protections in place to protect kids on the Internet. And three, doing something about our competition policy and algorithms so we know exactly what's going on and we can actually have alternatives for families. There's something that happened uh, Friday uh, that I wanted to ask you about, if we can bring up the picture. Um, You were at the uh, funeral for former Senator Bob Dole, and you were seated. There you are. You're seated next to a Republican Senator Ted Cruz, um, who, as everybody can see, is not masked, despite rules at the National Cathedral requiring all guests to wear masks indoors. Now, you're a breast cancer survivor. Um, you're still recovering, I guess. Uh, no, I'm, I'm 100% You're 100% now. better, but you're still at risk of infection because of, of, because of this, this fight that you, you won. What was going through your mind there where Ted Cruz pulls up next to you and doesn't have a mask on, even though the rules are, please wear a mask to protect you. You wear the masks to protect other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people should wear masks, especially when they're in settings when they're supposed to. I think part of our duty as civic leaders um, is actually to model behavior um, because it's not just about masks. It's also about vaccines. And Ted Cruz, you know, he's gotten a vaccine. He gets that. Um, And part of what I don't want to get lost here is why we were there. We were there to honor uh, Bob Dole and his memory. Bob Dole was all about consensus, bringing people together. And let's not forget that. And one of the things I learned at that funeral, which I didn't know, uh, was that Bob Dole was actually strongly supportive of establishing the MLK holiday. He was supportive of civil rights legislation. He did courageous things that were against the grain when called upon. Uh, And in his words, he actually um, once said um, that the that when you look at these things and when you look at what's what's happening in our country, uh, that courage Uh, is about bringing people together, right? And he was someone that I think we need to think about as we take on, I just watched that incredible debate you had, (laughs) as we take on these things in our country, that we have to find consensus when we can. Uh, Quickly, if you could, uh, the Supreme Court just ruled that some challenges against Texas's restrictive abortion ban can proceed. The law bans abortions after six weeks before a lot of women even know they're pregnant. It deputizes private citizens to enforce it. That law is allowed to remain in effect. Quickly, if you could, what was your reaction and what do you fear about the... Uh, I know you've expressed fear well, about what happens to Roe v. Wade. Yeah, why don't I quote Justice Roberts, who you know is a conservative justice, but he seems to be appalled by what's going on with the other justices in the court. And he said this, the clear purpose and actual effect of the Texas law has been to nullify this court's rulings. And that when the court allows states to do that, quote, the Constitution itself becomes a solemn mockery. This law is still in effect in Texas. It is inimical to Roe v. Wade and women's rights, something Justice Kagan has described as the actual fabric of a women's existence. So I believe in the end, based on what we heard out of the Mississippi case, where the real decision is going to be made about constitutionality, the Texas case is now going back to the lower courts, Um, a limited right to sue. But what we know is that if they decide this, as it appeared that they will, is that we will have no choice but to take this on state by state. I don't think that's the right way to handle this, a patchwork of state laws. I think the best way to handle this, to avoid back alley abortions and Mm -hmm. busing women around the country, um, is 
that codify Roe v. Wade, to put that into federal law, uh, to make sure that women have a choice to be a mom, um, to put a child up for adoption, or to terminate a pregnancy. That I am with 75% of Americans believe that this should be a choice between a woman and her doctor. Senator Amy Klobuchar from the great state of Minnesota, thanks so much for being with us Thank today. You. I appreciate it. Is this the way our democracy ends with a giant shrug? Our nation is in danger. Is anybody listening? That's next. We learned more this week about the efforts by Donald Trump and his team to overrule the will of the American people and steal the presidential election based on deranged lies and wild conspiracy theories. The FBI never did anything other than to impede investigations. Some of the wilder lies from this man, Philip Waldron, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, turned over to the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. A PowerPoint memo Waldron says he had circulated among other allies, a memo that reportedly called for Trump to declare a state of national emergency because of the false, if not lunatic, theory Waldron was pushing that foreign actors hacked into servers to change American votes. Waldron appeared in that unhinged film by MyPillow's Mike Lindell, a film that has prompted defamation lawsuits from Dominion voting. A lot of movements of votes, uh, directly direct uh, access to Pennsylvania voting precincts, county tabulation centers, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, all of that coming in directly uh, from foreign countries, China being the predominant one. Just crazy. And to reiterate, that guy had the ear of White House officials. That guy was pushing lunacy and urging them to declare a national emergency and seize ballots. On Friday, Trump attorney Jenna Ellis confirmed the authenticity of two memos published by Politico. One of them, dated December 31st, proposes a way for Vice President Pence to not count the electoral votes for Joe Biden from Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Because, she said, Republicans in those states were disputing their results, though, as always, we should note, these disputes were rooted in wild and unhinged lies. So Ellis said, quote, on January 6th, the vice president should therefore not open any of the votes from these six states and instead direct a question to the legislators of each of those states and ask them to confirm which of the two slates of electors have in fact been chosen in the manner the legislature has provided for. The question would then require a response from the state legislatures, which would then need to meet in an emergency electoral session, unquote. In other words, even though there were not two slates of electors from every state, Ellis's memo was proposing a way for Pence to push the state legislatures to convene and create them. Five of six of those states have Republican legislatures, we should note. This plan was counting on their participation. Another Ellis memo on January 5th, the day before the insurrection, proposes, quote, the vice president should begin alphabetically in order of the states and coming first to Arizona, not open the purported certification, but simply stop the count at that juncture, unquote. The states would then have to act. Ellis tweeted in response to the Politico story that she never, quote, advocated Pence had the authority to overturn the election and that the memo simply outlined, quote, legal theories I explored. Except we know that Vice President Pence was being pushed to take 
some action like that by this man, John Eastman, another preacher of crazy election lies. They were unloading the ballots from that secret folder, matching them, matching them to the unvoted voter, and voila, we have enough votes to barely get over the finish line. Just crazy. Eastman claimed in memos falsely that Pence was the, quote, ultimate arbiter of the electoral votes. We know this not just from reporting, but from Donald Trump's own words on January 6th. John is one of the most brilliant lawyers in the country, and he looked at this and he said, what an absolute disgrace that this could be happening to our Constitution. And he looked at Mike Pence, and I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Now, it might be tempting to laugh at all this wackiness, the nutty theories and the foreign hackers and bizarre legal memos, but Republican officials continue to push these lies, or at the very least, most of them are not standing up against them. Polling shows a majority of Republican voters now believe the falsehood that the election was stolen. One of those Republicans, this man, Stephen Lindemuth, a substitute teacher from Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania, who attended the January 6th rally and posted on his Facebook page, quote, unfortunately, a few weeds sprouted up and turned a very positive event into a negative one. A few weeds sprang up mixed within the wheat. They looked like wheat. They smelled like wheat. They appeared to be wheat, but they certainly weren't wheat. The enemy had planted some weeds in among the wheat, unquote. I'm not certain if Mr. Lindemuth was suggesting that the hundreds of Trump supporters who have been prosecuted for attacking the Capitol were not actually Trump supporters. But the only reason I'm even mentioning him to you is because Mr. Lindemuth ran and won the position of judge of elections in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. A guy who attended that ridiculous Stop the Steal rally, saying he was, quote, standing for the truth to be heard. He's now in charge of elections. And this is happening all over the country in offices small and large, from Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake in Arizona, endorsed by Trump, to former Georgia Senator David Perdue, endorsed by Trump to challenge incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp. Perdue just told Axios that he would not have signed the state's certification of electors had he been governor. Make no mistake, the folks from this movement do not believe in free and fair elections. They do not believe in your vote counting unless you vote for them. Their platform is disenfranchisement and derangement. It is undemocratic, and it's frankly un-American, and they're doing it right in front of all of us, right out in the open. Trump once said, quote, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose voters. He did try to kill democracy once, and he's going to try to do it again, clearly. But this time, with a little help from his friends, he might actually pull it off. We'll be right back. Before we go, we want to take a moment to welcome the newest member of our State of the Union family, Grace Lucille McNamara, born on Thursday to our editorial producer, Cassie McNamara, and her husband, Jim. Mom and baby are both doing great. Look at that little punum. Congratulations, Cassie and Jim. She is beautiful. Fareed Zakaria picks it up next. Dave, thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.